0: And welcome to episode 102 of Talking Dirty. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, in a very fetching green and navy ensemble with matching green glasses, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist.
1: And on this very grey day here in East Anglia, it's just starting to rain outside, everybody, we have the ever-beautiful and absolutely blossoming Thordis (laughs) (laughs) Fridgety I forgot your middle name.
0: Oh, never mind. <laughs> Round by the day and loving it. and uh, Back <laughs> on the podcast, wearing a very fetching brawler sleeveless sweater slash vest slash tank top. We have Val Iris Bourne, our galanthophile, our wonderful award winning gardener in our midst. Happy New Year. How the devil are you? I am exceedingly well. I'm trying not to eat
2: too much Christmas cake, but that's not difficult here because the best beloved is very territorial about the Christmas cake (laughs) and and says, oh, no, I don't think you should have a slice. I think you should have yogurt. (laughs) Which is what he said yesterday. So
0: I'm in good, fine form. Definitely. Is is yogurt often a replacement for Christmas cake? Because I don't feel like the two are interchangeable, really. Well, the, prob- the thing is
2: that if I have the yogurt, then when I go out or turn a blind eye or I'm in my study, the Christmas cake mysteriously goes down. <laughs> and the annoying thing is, he's six foot five and a half, six foot six. He doesn't seem to put on any weight. Whereas I only have to look at a slice of Christmas cake and I've gone...
0: We've all got one of those in the house. They're very irritating, these people who just consume all the food and where does it go? Um, did you just say uh, it started raining where you are on the other side yes. of the house?: Yes, it, uh, it's been raining for some time here.
2: I mean, it's another glorious day in paradise in the Cotswolds because <laughs> we have had nothing but rainy days, except yesterday was a lovely day here. But, of course, I was held to the desk by an article, so I couldn't go out. Now, today I can't go out. Tomorrow I can't go out. Thursday I can go out and it's another rainy forecast. And oh, it's God. making oh. gardening so difficult because, you know, you're sliding about on mud and all the snowdrops are coming up. The leaves came down late. The weeds are growing. I'm thoroughly
0: depressed. Well, not really. <laughs> Well fortunately you have those burgeoning clumps of snowdrops to beckon you on and fill you with glee and this is really my first year of being able to go out and see what exciting little clumps of snowdrops there are. Somehow one or two of my labels have vanished and I they're in a raised bed I don't know how it's happened but I can't I can't identify one or two of them until they flower and hopefully I will be able to then but things like wasp and diggery, they're there in fine, fine form. These, uh, these clumps coming up, and I'm bursting with joy.
1: You know, thought is, the trick is that you 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 have to do two labels: one that you can see, and one that you bury. <laughs> if you if you, I mean, Richard Hobbs does this. If you're planting, you 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 go to the right or to the left, whichever suits you, and always to the same to the same direction to the side of your clump, and you bury a label there, and then you've always got it.
2: Yes that's a good idea. I put one behind and one in the front and then when they get a bit shabby I make some new ones. I use Dymo tape and I put them in. So I end up with an enormous amount of labels and the best beloved is very unkind and he calls my Snowdrop collection the national collection of white labels.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well I can understand that but uh, in actual fact it is. It does. It's something about labels that I don't like. I really don't, and I get castigated for castigated here for not labelling plants enough. But I try to label every plant when it goes into the garden. But you know, visitors can be very sneaky, and they they'll pinch <laughs> a label rather than write it down for themselves.
2: Oh well, I think there. I think there are
1: label
2: label elves that go round in the night. Yeah, I think that's what we'll call because them. <laughs> I'm looking at some of mine. And I'm thinking, there's no label there. I hope I recognise you. And of course, yes. You don't recognise them all. You recognise the distinctive ones, but then a lot of them escape you. But that's part of the fun. Actually, what I really like to do in my extreme old age is pull all the blessed labels out and just let them get on with it. <laughs>
0: Are there any clumps that you have you know, been peering at through the endless days of rain and getting excited about because they're looking bountiful or you're enjoying the, the combinations of them with other plants, other neighbours?
2: Yes, well, I've got um, 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 an apricot tree. I think it's an apricot tree. Yes, it is brown the apricot. I've got an apricot tree and I planted some Mrs McNamara around it, which is the most amazingly tall, robust snowdrop flowers at Christmas. And um, I'm gradually putting it all around the tree. And you know, woody plants are fantastic. If you can plant your snowdrops close to shrubs or close to trees that are bare at this time of year, the overhead canopy provides more warmth and the roots drain the soil. So the bulbs are very, very happy. And, and they really are the star performers at the moment. But I've ha- already had a lot out that have gone over. And I blinked and missed one called Peshmeni. I, I went up to it the other day and it had got seed heads. And I thought, oh, I haven't seen a flower. <gasps> <laughs> so there's lots of exciting snowdrops coming up. And they came up in a rush when it went warm after the cold weather.
1: Yeah, know, Which is why man,
2: I've man. been out in the garden so much trying to get the debris off them. Because they're just yeah. rushing up. Are yours the same, Alan?
1: They are indeed. I mean, we had that... I don't know about you, but we had an unprecedented cold temperature here for about four days. We went down to minus four. Yes. Um, which is uh, is very cruel for us. I mean, we're normally, you know, just above freezing or just below, and that's quite something. But i tell you what amazed me, Val, was after that, <clears throat> the warmth came back, and suddenly everything is opening again. I went to the kitchen window and looked out... Um, three days after the frost had gone and, yes. the warm, and there's a camellia with six flowers on it.
2: Yes, I it know. It's amazing. Move. I mean, yeah. snowdrops yeah. are definitely prompted into flower by warmth. Yes, But, um, you know, it, if we get those cold, sunny winters, that sort of promotes things like crocuses and cyclamen to flower. Yeah. So that I couldn't pick masses from my garden today. Hey, it was raining very heavily and I didn't really want to go out. But <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot out. There's, you know, just a few shrubby things. Um, A lot of the things that I might expect to be out, like a few early crocuses, are still hunkering down, and there's no sign of an aconite yet.
1: Well, talking about aconites, I went yesterday, and just the the common old Aranthus Hymalis. Yes. um, Outside my back door, there's a patch of it. And I thought, oh, there's one there, two, three, four, five. So I went and looked at some of the more expensive purchases, and I found that there were actually six different aconites out. Six varieties. Oh,
2: well, that's you being nearer the coast because you were talking I think, about yes. going down to minus four. I think we were more like minus six or minus seven yeah, because we're yeah. not that far from Benton in Oxfordshire that went down really low. Yeah, And uh, we are cold here. So, yeah, um, cold Ashton. Cold Aston, indeed. Ashton,
1: yes, sorry.
2: Ashton, not Ashton. No, that's <laughs> possibly tropical compared to me.
0: Cold here. <laughs> I really wish I'd paid more attention to the temperature in my own garden, but I've said before the Cambridge University Botanic Garden, which is 20 minutes drive away and hopefully in an exposed spot, minus 15. And I really hope it didn't do that in my garden, but I doubt it did. Oh, my, no. my little sort of suburban small plot with a bit more protection and lots of houses around it yeah buildings
2: make a huge difference i mean one of the reasons that um we're cold here but we've got a long cottage that faces south and it's a bit like a storage radiator so the area sort of close to the house doesn't get nearly as cold and it's as the garden has got more planted up um it's a lot warmer than the field so the field will often be really frosty but the garden won't And it's taken a long time to get to that stage. Yeah. Mm. And
0: you mentioned removing debris. I don't think we really need to to tell viewers and listeners to this podcast because you're all such great plants people. But it is obviously important when so many things have been destroyed by the the cold weather and have gone all floppy and there's a lot of mush around uh, to to kind of get out there and make sure that your snowdrop clumps and your special things are, are cleared of that. Yes. Well,
2: I normally do that in September, October time, and get it looking as pristine as I can and I collect the leaves. But because it was so mild and it was such a hot summer, they hung onto their leaves really late. And some of the leaves were enormous. I had um, hazel leaves that were the size of my palm uh, on my sort of purple hazel. And they came down really late in the cold weather. So it was December. And then I didn't really th- worry about them. I thought oh, it's fine. And then I noticed that the snowdrops had punctured the leaves, <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm going to get those leaves off because I want the snowdrop pumps to look really nice. So I've been doing lots of leaf gathering. And people often say to me, "What do you do in the winter?" Well, I find it's an incredibly busy time. I don't know about you,
1: Alan. Um, are you very busy I think in the winter? Question, Val. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <yeah.
2: laughs> well, you know, they, a lot of people don't have much to do in the winter.
1: They put their garden to bed in, in the autumn, which is a, a silly thing to do, I always yes, think. Yes, it is.
2: Um,
1: you know, I mean, there's nothing better to get than, I mean, it may be cold, it may be slightly inconvenient, but I mean, get out, if, if there's no such thing as the wrong weather, just the wrong clothes. So if you wrap yourself up warm and you get out in the garden, you can enjoy it.
2: Yes, I mean, people often ask me at this time of year, where I've been on holiday, Yes. And um, they say, oh, you've obviously been away. And I say, no, I've just been in the garden because you do get this sort yeah. of glow. Yeah. Not sure how glowing I am today. I'm, not a, I'm never as glowing as Mr. Gray.
0: <laughs> nobody is. Don't you, nobody. Nobody. <laughs> I gave up competing a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> so in your sort of foray into your plot, what did you manage to find today for a spot of show and tell? Well, I haven't really got flowers to show and tell.
2: But what I'm showing and telling are my apples, because I do a lot of pruning in the winter. And um, I'm, a, I'm very wedded to my felcos. And if you notice, my felcos get really muddy. And um, I think that every gardener, I don't know whether you see it, every gardener, these are felco number twos, uh, but I also use Parker number sixes. And I have some of those wonderful Jenner's gardening trousers with the slots either side. <laughs> and I keep them in there. And then I'm going around doing my pruning and suddenly I miss a pair of secateurs. And I think, oh, they've got red handles. I'll find those dead easily. And I come in and I say to the best beloved, I've lost my secateurs. And I think there Because I can't reach into the wheelie bed, you see, because I'm not tall enough. <laughs> So I, I send him out, and, and then I, I sort of say, well, I really need a metal detector, because I, I love that program, the detectorists. And then he always says that he's the, he's the husband metal detectorists. I probably got that wrong. He's in the next room. He'll tell me off. The human detectorists, I think he said. Oh, I said, I'll go and be the human detectorist. And then he finds my secateurs for me. So I've been doing lots and lots of pruning. And um, when we came here, there was nothing in the garden. And we had um, a discussion about apple trees. And Joe said, the best beloved, I don't really want fruit trees. But I did, and I promised him apple pies. So I just went and planted them. And um, this apple here, we've got, we've only got three apples. I'm not sure how, I'm I'm, sorry. I'm trying to get it the right way. This one is called Blenheim orange. And um, it's a wonderful apple. You can't buy it
1: in the shops. That's the apple that my grandfather said will keep until apples come again.
2: Yes, it does keep for a long, long time.
1: And it's dual
2: purpose. So you can cook it and it gets a Turkish delight flavour, or you can chop it up. And we have apples every morning for breakfast on the top of the muesli. And Mm. I think it does, all the skin, the flavonoids in the skin do keep you healthy. Definitely. So this is one apple and the Blenheim orange is a very untidy tree it's a bit like a sea monster it doesn't have many branches but they spread everywhere and um, the other apple that we grow is this one and this is an East Anglian apple called Darcy Spice and it's a very aromatic russet-like apple and this tree um, is actually um, a very upright soldier it goes it doesn't go very wide but it goes very very tall and then the other apple, which is rather a scrotty specimen, is pit-mast and pineapple. And these are very small and really we should um, thin them out and we never do. But the grandchildren used to love these little apples when they were tiny. And um, one of the jobs I've been doing or thinking about doing, I haven't finished it yet, is pruning the apples because I've got a piece of apple wood here.
0: Nice and, um, view of your jumper there, Val. Sorry? Nice view of your fair isle. <laughs> yes,
2: I, I, I love my fair isle. And uh, you probably, you perhaps can't see, but um, this wood here is very, very dull. I've got to try and get it in summer. This wood here is very, very dull, so it's last year. And then you've got this shiny brown wood, um, which is this year's wood. And actually, considering it was a dry summer, this is a pitmast and pineapple branch that I took off because it was too low. And it's a good time of year if you've got branches that are too low or crossing to saw them off and leave a stump by the trunk so that they've got room to sort of seal and everything. They won't damage. And then you've got all this shiny new growth, which is probably about 18 inches. And what you've got to do with your secateurs is cut it back away from the bud so that you're slanting it away from the bud. And uh, you're removing most of it because what you're trying to do is to get the apple tree to produce side shoots because that's where the fruit is. It'll form fr- fruit buds, which are much plumper. And uh, so uh, all the apple trees, the three apple trees that we've got, and Pitmaster and pineapple is a bit like one of those um, um, Jewish candlesticks. It's a sort of menorah shape. I think it's menorah, don't correct me. So I'm pruning back the apple trees um, so that I, I can actually pick the fruit because if I just left that, Growth to go year after year, the apple tree would get taller and taller, but it wouldn't get much fruit. So you're actually sort of promoting the fruit buds by winter pruning.
1: If you take that piece of pruning that you've got in your hand and you cut those long pieces off, yes, put the lower piece, the the chunky piece, in some water, those buds could well open for you because that's what we used to do with apple pruning right. when I was a child.
2: Right. I hadn't realised that. But, you know, yeah. you sort of, I would cut them down to about there yeah. and throw yeah. them away from
1: the bud. On that lower branch, you have some some fruiting spurs, I can see.
2: Yes, I have got some fruiting spurs. There's not many on this one, but you can see they're here. Yeah. And as they come out. And I mean, the apples, apple trees are such good wildlife plants. Um, because you've got their blossom in the spring, you've got the fruit which you can eat, which in these days of tight budgets is quite a saving. And mm, I'm going yeah. to look up how many insects, 93 different insects go on to apple trees. So they're very, very, and birds love them. Um, blue tits will get the grubs off the um, uh, tree in the spring for their nestlings. The blackbirds will eat the fallen fruit. They're a really good wildlife tree. So... Um, You know, it's worth, if you're trying to be a natural gardener, actually having a few apple trees. And, uh, of course, you know, it appeals to the Yorkshire lady and me because I don't have to go and buy apples in the winter. (laughs) It was such a bumper crop last year as well.
1: Did you have a bumper crop? We did. Yeah, we did. I I think everybody did. I got castigated by visitors more than once for not picking them all. Um, I mean, we had had what we wanted. Um, And as everybody else that works here does as well, they help themselves. Yes. Yes. but the rest, and I tried to explain to people, like you just said, the rest yes. of the apples that have fallen on the ground, they get eaten by other things, I mean, blackbirds, thrushes, or whatever, and all the other little bits and pieces that come along, the voles and mice and goodness yes, knows. Yes,
2: absolutely. And, yes. You know, and so even they the
1: probably. Yeah, yeah, and it's a it's a full circle thing, isn't it?
2: Yes, and um, and this one, Darcy Spice, is actually meant to be put, picked. I can't do this. Actually, meant to be picked on bonfire night. Oh. It's a really late picker, and that's when you're supposed to pick it. But we're so windy here that when we get these equinoctial I can never say that word. equinoctial Thank you, gales around, you know, the end of September. Yeah. If we haven't picked our apples, they all end up on the floor. So this was picked really too early. But, you know, by, by planting two or three varieties that flower at the same time and getting three distinct... Uh, uh, different apples that store to different lengths of time. You can have apples from about October right the way through to, to May if you're lucky yeah
0: and over here in our part of the country we've got the east of england apples and orchards project where you can go and find your specific varieties from your county obviously norfolk has loads cambridgeshire because of all of the jam makers in histon and stuff we have yes. uh, various uh, cambridgeshire varieties as well um in your part of the world do you have like a similar project where did you get your nice varieties from
2: well i actually got mine from waterperry gardens and um i didn't go for particularly local apples i went for apples that I like to eat. And this Darcy Spice Apple, I really do enjoy it. It's, it's, it's a russet, but it's not a sort of, it's not a very dry russet. It's, it's just got a, a, a nutmeggy flavor. I really like eating it. But um, I talked to an apple expert called Barry Juniper, who was, uh, one of the, uh, was at one of the universities in Oxford. And he said, oh, Val, you'll never grow that. But it has actually gone very, very well. It does grow very, very well here because we've got, um, on top of the Cotswolds, we haven't got a huge water table. So actually the area where it is, it's quite dry. And then this Blenheim orange that obviously came from um, the Blenheim estate at Woodstock. That's such a pretty apple,
1: isn't
2: it? I know. It was originally called Kempster's Pier pippin after the gardener who found it on the estate and planted it in his garden but a fruit grower wanted to propagate it and give it a posher name Mm. that became Mm. blenheim orange and this is actually probably quite a lowland apple this apple took years to get going threatened it with a replacement for a bramley i said if you don't do start growing because it was just a stick and i think one of the things i've learned is that when you're buying a fruit bush you know go to a specialist grower and avoid a maiden let them do the pruning let them you know shape the bush and you spend a bit more on a proper um, fruit tree that's already showing some sort of shape because this thing was like a stick in a pot (laughs) for probably four or five years until I said if you don't do better, you're coming out, and then it, it seemed to sort of buck up a bit.
0: <laughs> Amazing how those threats do the trick, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if the question is how do you like them apples, the answer is very much. Thank you. Yes. For some appley show and tell.
2: <laughs> yes. So I've got. I haven't got any plants this time. I I, I have apples, and um, can I talk about pruning for little longer? Would you yes. like? Yes. We love talking right. about pruning. Right. Well, I've also been pruning my roses and uh, I have to get up and show off my sweater again. <laughs> right. Um, I've got a, quite a lot of dieback on my roses and I think it's that hot summer. Could be. Because they, they, I pruned them, obviously, and um, there's, um, you can't actually see it that well, but there's that much dieback on here. And that's really bad news. And you could cut it down to there, but I suspect that if you cut through there, no, actually that's not true, but quite often there's already a dark spot in the middle where the rose is gonna die back even further. So I've been cutting back my roses uh, and I think pruning roses is very, very important. And I grow a lot of roses here and um, I have a lot of floribunda roses and there are those roses Um, that repeat flower and they form clusters of flowers. So sometimes they're called cluster flowered roses. And for some reason, rose growers have got it into their head that floribunda roses aren't popular because they didn't used to be terribly good, but they are good now. And a lot of uh, rose growers are growing them. And um, I grow one, for instance, called Champagne Moment, which I often talk about. When I prune those, I only cut them down to about 18 inches in height I don't go very, very low with them um, because they're not actually uh, as hardy or as vigorous as things like hybrid teas. So I cut those down to about 18 inches and I try to take out any dead wood, um, die back, diseased and make an open shape. And I find it makes a real difference to them. And then in about a month, perhaps six weeks time, depending on the weather, I will give them a good feed um, of a phosphate rich. Uh, rose food. It's not particularly organic. I use Vitax Q4 uh, just to sort of give them a boost. I've also got some hybrid teas, which I use for picking, particularly Shandos Beauty and one called Mary Berry. And I must tell you that Mary Berry came to one of my talks. Really? Near Hedley in Arden. (laughs) I arrived early and I was stuffing my face with a packet of crisps. Don't tell the best beloved. Um, somebody knocked on the window. So I, so I thought, oh, I better go in, you know. And I, I really want to sit there for a few minutes because when you've had a long drive, you just want to go. Oh. But you can't park anywhere in the Chilterns apart from this opposite, this village hall, which is near Henley. And uh, so I sort of went in and one of the first people to arrive was Mary Berry. And she... She came with an article I'd written on The Telegraph about roses, and I'd mentioned her rose. And I'm so pleased to tell you that when I unfolded it, it had tea stains and bacon stains. So I think oh, her good. husband involved because She's involved. So, <laughs> she's so pristine, isn't she? I love Mary Berry. And I, I, so I took the article home. I should have got her to sign it, shouldn't I? But I was so pleased. Anyway, talking about hybrid teas, um, they're very sort of vigorous and they go straight up in the air and you can cut a hybrid tea down to about five or six inches and when you're cutting a rose down what you need to do is look at the buds so you don't want your roses to grow inwards so you ignore any inward facing buds and you look for an outward facing bud and about half an inch uh, above the bud you make the slanting cut and uh, then that Rose will shoot from there and go outwards. So uh, I cut, I'm cutting the hybrid teas down to probably five or six inches. And if I've got a lot of wood at the base, I will get the pruning saw and saw it out. And and I have killed roses doing that when we've had late frosts. So <laughs> I, I, I wish, I wish on my Christmas list I could get a metal detector so I can find my secateurs without having to confess to the best beloved that he's got to rummage in the green bin again. <laughs> and then I wish I could have a crystal ball that would predict the weather.
1: Don't we all? it's Don't so mild all.
2: now <laughs> here, but are we and going yeah, to be closed yeah. down by winter in February when I want to be out and about visiting snowdrop gardens? That is the question.
0: How much of an impact does it have on... Your kind of gardening jobs, this uncertainty with the weather? Because, like you just said, you can do something at the wrong time and it has, you know, a decimating effect.
2: Well, I don't worry about it very much. I mean, I just think you have to do what needs doing on the day. And it's so important to get out there and keep on top of it and garden in the winter because you notice all sorts of things. And it's really the ta- only time you can prune fruit cheese. Um, it's the best time now on a mild day. You can't do it on a cold day. So you
1: have to get on with it. Fruit trees, roses, hydrangeas, when the leaves are down, you can actually see the structure of the plant and you can yes. actually see what you're doing. But I'm yeah. like you, I'm a great believer in the old maxim that Christo Lloyd always said, it's better to do a job when you think of it than not to do it at all.
2: Yes, absolutely. And also <laughs> you can collect the rose leaves off the ground at this time of year because yes. they were late to fall. And, and you know, with the, with the um, hotter summer, People are going to get more black spot, probably, because the rose was weakened by those severe conditions. So I'm very, very careful at this time of year to remove every rose leaf. And I do put that in the green bin, sometimes with my secateurs. <laughs> 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 but, you know, it's but getting those leaves up is important. And, um, you know, what am I going to do if I don't go out, sit indoors and eat Christmas cake? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and some of these rose growths, I mean, this is the stem on the generous gardener, which is the most amazing rose. And it's one of the David Austin shrub roses. Well, it, it's gone up to about nine feet tall. So I'm afraid um, this one has been uh, taken down by probably um, about five or six feet because I've got roses all along the boundary wall so that they go over. Um, But this is quite an upright rose and it will snap in the wind. So I want to keep it as compact as possible. So I'm I'm sort of, while I'm tidying all those rose leaves up and that area against the wall, I'm also pruning the leaves and making um, quite a sort of mess. And very shortly, I'll be cutting down the clematis as well. I've already cut some of them down. But you do worry about doing things at the wrong time. But the weather's erratic and it is harder to garden
1: the generous gardener it looks to me as if you could grow it against the wall as a, as a climber as well well
2: david austin have got it as a climber now ah. and um, but it's it's very stemmy but it mm. does it mm. is the most wonderful rose i mean if you've got the room to have a big shrub rose um this generous gardener never actually gets um, any disease in my garden and you do get um wonderful orange hips on it if you leave the uh, last flowers it is a very very good rose and they do sell it as a climber i mean i've got ramblers in my garden as well that flower only once and i didn't get round to pruning them in november and they're they're drip the flower in june i think it's so important to have these roses mm. and you you know you take out the old stems you might take two old stems out if you've got two uh wonderful new stems and you're cutting those down at the base so that you're keeping the rose vigorous and keeping it going for as long as possible i think the hardest roses to climb are uh, prune are actually climbers because they're so diverse and, um, yes,
1: you, you have to know the habit of the plant that you're actually pruning, I think. Um, yes, we, you do. We've started to make lots of curls um, with some of our whippy, whippy climbers. Yes. And that actually works, believe it or not. Um, well, it does, because
2: they do that. They did that anyway at a garden um, near Burford called, um, I think it's Astell. It used to be the the, the Midland, uh, the Mitford, Mitford. Yes. Yes, they used that's to where live I there. saw it. Yes, well, I wrote it up in the Telegraph when I noticed it about 10 years ago. There was a gardener called Mark Edwards who was doing like tapestry on the walls with loops. And the whole idea of pruning roses um, is actually to slow down the sap, to stop them going straight up. And if you've got a pergola and you loop a rose along like a looper caterpillar, you're slowing the sap down. Or if you're curling it round um, a post you'll get more flower because the rose won't be going straight up it's a bit like the apple trees so uh, rose training is is quite important and uh, that uh, is is a lovely it's time consuming um, we've got somebody in the village who's made a big heart on the side of the wall which i think is real really fun i don't i haven't seen the rose flower yet because it's quite a new rose but uh, i think climbers are really hard i've got one called mrs honey dyson um, which i love and it's, a, it's an American rose, and it's a really big, blousy, cream rose. But she's very, you know, she's a bit like Lady Hillingdon. If you let her, she'd be up in the gutters. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I have real trouble pruning her. So I, um, I planted a new rose, which was Rose of the Year. Um, it's Rose of the Year this year. And I'm trying to think of the name of it, and I can't. And that's a low climber a bit like a lower is and I'm planted that under Mrs. Honey Dyson on the side of the summer house to try to hide all those ugly uh, branches that I can't I can't get Mrs. Honey Dyson down on the ground at all. Um, she, <laughs> if, I, if I cut her she just goes woomph again. But she is a lovely rose and I do do love her because she repeat flowers. Was
1: it called It's a Wonderful
2: Life? It's a good question. It's it's an orange um, climber by Cordes, and it's the Rose of the Year 2023.
1: Oh, 2023.
2: Yes. Yes, look it up for me, Alan, because I haven't got my phone.
1: I'm doing it as we speak. Yes. Peach Melba.
2: Peach Melba, that's it. I got two (laughs) of them. I went to the launch, and I I bagged two, two of them that were grown in Germany. Wonderful plants. And I put them at the base of Mrs. Honey Dyson. And uh, I managed to water them through the summer, and they're still alive.
1: <laughs> Picture here shows a wonderful sort of very full double, and 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 it, there's uh, there's orange in the heart of it, but it's it's kind of peachy and pink and cream as well. And yes, it's a lovely rose. Yeah, peach, the petals are beautifully curled. So well, Rosa Peach Melba looks like a stunner.
2: Well, the thing about Cordes roses, they're bred in Germany and the company um, breed very very healthy roses and I'm an organic gardener I have to have healthy roses I can't grow anything that gets black spot because I can't spray um so I, I I grow a lot of cordes roses um sweet honey was another one that I really recommend champagne moment I've mentioned um bring me sunshine actually i haven't found that very floriferous but of course it's only been in a year or so and last summer you know was so dry and i don't water my garden in the dry weather um, because i think it's a waste of a resource i water my greenhouse i don't open my garden i just leave it and it looked very sad at the end of august and then I went up to Stone Cottage Nurseries near Kidderminster, which is near mm, yeah. Bath, garden. Yeah. And she'd watered, and her garden looked magnificent. And I came back, and I thought, mm. but I'm not water my my borders um, in dry weather here because um, I can't store enough water, and I don't want to use tap water when it's so um, when it's getting low in reservoirs in summers like we've just had. So I've chosen not to water.
0: Have we talked before about how that impacts your Hamamelis? Because I think you've got quite the, the witch hazel collection. So how have they been faring after such a dry summer?
2: Well, I, I had to loo- I had to water one of them because what happens with Hamamelis is they, they're Asian plants. They like a wet summer and a dry winter. So we're fighting the conditions here. <laughs> and um, there's a lot of bud on them. So they liked the warm weather. Uh, and there was one that, and slanted its leaves and began to look very sick and i just got a couple of buckets of water and tipped it over every week for a, probably four or five weeks and it hasn't got any flower bud on it but it's still alive and i had another one that i thought was dead um which was a new one called um there's a new grace series orange grace red grace yellow grace and i got them from Mark Straver's Hortus loci. It was a gift actually. So I was very keen to keep it alive. I was really worried that it had gone, but it does look as though it's alive. You know, there's no flower, but it looks as though it's got living buds on it. It's a huge worry when you plant something new and then you have a summer like we had, you know, when there's no rainfall. And I did water new plants. But some things, like the Oringians just loved it. And other things, like the Crocosmias, hated it. I never <laughs> got a yeah, cosmos flower here. Yeah.
1: Phlox didn't like it either.
2: No, actually, um, there was one phlox that didn't seem to mind it, which was a tall one called Utopia. Mm. I don't know whether you know that one. It's probably about five foot tall, and it's a sort of cool pink. And it has a petal with a sort of nick in it. So yes. the petals are quite divided, It's a, I like it very much. Uh, I think it's a Carl Foster, it's certainly an old, but I'd have to look that up as well. It's quite an old variety Utopia and that did flower really well. And Bright Eyes was fairly good too, but some of them didn't flower. And I'm thinking, oh, will I take them out? I've taken one or two things out. And there are plants that you used to rely on like Helianthus lemon queen. Mm. which was such a good performer and it's just failing, you know, most years now. And I'm thinking perhaps I should just take it out. But I mean, you know, it is, um, I want to, I, I best not swear on the internet. It's something. somebody's law that if you take it out... you'll end up with a series of wet summers and wish you hadn't. So I'm leaving it at the moment.
0: Well, There's lots of
2: sitting on the fence going on here.
0: This is like me having had, you know, because I've gardened over the last, I suppose, 12 years or so. Yes. uh, I haven't really had a proper hard cold spell like this. You know, it happened yeah. very early on in my gardening journey when I wouldn't have noticed, really, because I'd have been very yes. largely hardy things. So this was finally the year when I thought, Do you know what, my garden's barely sheltered. I'm going to try all these different things. So I, uh, we talked about uh, last time, the, um, the Fuchsia Procumbens that is almost, well, is going to be dead. I don't know if Podophyllum Spotsy Dottie has made it. Um, and this year I put Olearia in, Pittosporum, all these things that I'd not tried before thinking, it's been so mild it'll be fine and they all look like sticks and I don't know which of them will or won't come back. But well, my, just...
2: well, my advice is give them time because yeah. if you yeah. lose a hardy fuchsia or you lose something, it will often return, but it won't return until about the be- early July. So if you can sit on your hands and you will be busy for days. <laughs> I can <laughs> guarantee that. You will wonder where the days have gone. <laughs> you will be tired. Unless you get an angel that sleeps <laughs> through the night. And one of mine did, actually. Really? Yes. Oh, she lucky said. you.
0: I doubt I will. From the, what it's been doing in my stomach, I doubt it's going to be very <laughs> passive in the real world. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> hey, Fordyce here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.